This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John asks this. He says, whoever has this world's goods, whoever has the things of this world and sees his brother in need and then shuts up his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Whoever has things and sees someone in need in our midst and then shuts up his heart in response to having seen that, how in the world does the love of God abide in such a man? There are few issues as near and dear to the heart of God as the care and provision of the broken. Throughout its pages, from one end of the book to the other, Old Testament, New Testament, Moses, Jesus, you routinely see compassion for those who are hurting. Now, I can prove this point using a thousand different verses, but I thought I'll look at one book. Look at the book of Proverbs because it condenses truth in a bite-sized form. Book of Proverbs, just a handful of verses. Bear with me, say this. Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19.17, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Proverbs 22.9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Finally, Proverbs 28.27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eye will get many a curse. That's a small sampling from just one book out of the 66 in the whole of the Bible. These verses, along with a thousand others we could sit and work through, all have the same objective. To instruct us and to remind us that if God has given us grace, it is our responsibility to share that grace with still others. That God's eye is truly on those who are brokenhearted, truly on those who are in need. And it is a shame to us if we don't share that compassion. Worse yet, if we close our eyes and pretend that those needs don't exist or that they'll be helped by someone other than ourselves. Time and time again, we see a call to what we in our church call mercy ministry. God brings to our attention the poor and the brokenhearted. And then when he does so, he says, you have a responsibility to do something. So it's not just that God says, hey, there are poor people. Okay, we got that. It goes on to say, you need to do something about this. This was the call to the Old Testament covenant community. It's a call to the New Testament covenant community. And frankly, it's a great encouragement to me personally that God cares about the broken and the down and out. At one point, I was broken and down and out. If you live long enough, you'll get there too if you haven't been there already. God's eyes upon those who are hurting. That's such an encouragement to us that he should care for those who are the most disenfranchised in our society. God regularly has sought out, loved upon, drew near, gave himself for those who are in need. That's the very essence of what we call the gospel. God drawing near to the broken and strung out and hurting and needy individuals. The gospel is all about desperate beggars who are given heavenly bread. In this room, there are no self-made Christians. They're only recipients of grace. And if we receive that grace in times past, then how dare we withhold it from others in the world around us? That's what we see in this text. That's what we see throughout the entirety of Scripture. All right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 from Deuteronomy 15. So you can see how this applied even in the Old Testament covenantal community under Moses. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, and then we'll work our way through the passage and sprinkle in some New Testament passages as well. Verse 7. 
If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of your gates in your land, which the Lord is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him. Not a little bit, but wide to him and willingly lend for him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. And yes, there's a difference between needs and wants. All right, as you're aware, the book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses. However, what you might not recall is that the book was written at the very tail end of Moses' time, Moses' experience. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy occurs basically right before Moses dies. And what he says is, I'm going to tell you people everything that's on my heart and mind. I'm going to do everything I can to equip you for that time in which I am gone. Moses just pours out that which is most important to himself and is trying to instill on the people the life lessons he has learned. The memoirs of Moses is what we see here because he reminds people of all that God's done in the past and all that he'll yet do in the future. And it's like he's grabbing the lapels of the people and he's saying, dear heavens, please remember this. Please value what I'm saying here. And in verses 17 through 11 in today's text, he's saying, I want you to value not only what I'm saying, but value the people to your left and to your right. Moses had learned some things over the years about his fellow Israelites. One was that they could be really stubborn. The people under Moses could be really stubborn towards God, and they could be really hard-hearted towards one another. Now, with regards to God, the people have been rebels. Moses had seen this at every turn. Every turn, the people question God. He leads them out of Egypt. There's miracle after miracle and plague after plague. And the moment they get out in the wilderness and their tummies start to grumble with rage, but what did they do? Well, they got angry at God. They shook their fists. They cursed Moses just because they were hungry. And what was God's response? Well, God provided manna in the wilderness, water from rock, miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet... Even when they approach the very mountain of God and the thunderings, the lightnings, and they hear the voice come down, and you would think that that would be sufficient to cause them to live righteously for the rest of their days, that's not what happens. Moses goes up to the mountain a little too long. The people, again, their tummies start to grumble. They look around. They're looking for leadership. They want to worship something. And before you know it, they cook up the golden calf. The people were rebels. They're breakers of commandments, makers of golden calves. So they had problems with the relationship with God, but they also had problems in the relationships with one another. They could be merciless to those in their midst. Not just merciless to the Philistines, they were merciless to one another. They were angry and hard-hearted towards each other. They are graceless, they are dispassionate, they had a tendency, you know, when the manna came down, you know what a lot of people did? Despite God's warnings not to take more than just a day's need, what did they do? Ah, they just grabbed it and accumulated it and tried to store it thinking that they could hoard God's blessings. And of course, by the next day, it was filled with worms because God said, don't do that. And yet, whether it was manna or just things, shinier rocks than your neighbor had or a better tent or better wool or what have you, they wanted and grabbed and hoarded and kept unto themselves. And Moses had watched all this. And he identifies this in verse 7 as a hardness of heart, a hardness of heart, a stony heart that rejects the needs of those around one. Now, if you were to read the chapter heading up to our verses in verse 7, you would see that leading up to today's reading, Moses had talked to the people about a release that would occur from those in debt that was going to occur every seven years. Back in the days of Moses, the people had money problems too. There was no payday lenders at the end of the block, so what they did is they became in debt to one another. And some folks became really in debt to the point that they could never, ever get out of it. 
Well, every seven years, God had the wisdom to say that Israelites were to be released from their debts. And there is some dispute about what that release meant. Was this like a perpetual release, like you owed a million dollars and then it was immediately forgiven, you didn't owe anything up to that point? We're not sure. Perhaps it was elimination of the need to repay debt for that seventh year, that you got a year break until it picked up the next year. We're not 100% certain there's a lot of different thoughts, but regardless, this release from debt, whatever it was, it had two outcomes. The first one is obvious. The first one of them is that it helped those in need. This release from obligation, whether it was for a year or perpetuity, it undid the shackles of debt that were otherwise causing people an inability to act, to move, or to better themselves. They were going to drown under this mountain of obligation unless there was some relief. Secondarily, the forgiveness of these financial debts had a spiritual objective. Everything God does always has a spiritual objective. And in this case, forgiving the debts of your neighbor was intended to spiritually suggest the forgiveness that we all need from the hands of God. If you forgive the debt of someone who owes you something, that's a trifle. That's nothing. That's small compared to what you yourself have been forgiven from. So this is another objective in this, is that they just learned forgiveness. They learned grace. They learned what it meant to be freed from that which would otherwise have restricted them or debt that would otherwise have crushed them with. So they learned spiritual lessons and they learned material lessons. Now, by the time we get to verse 7, Moses has moved past that release from debt and he's talking about attitudes. He talked about the law and the obligation and what to do and the release from debts and all that. And now he's saying, hey, I'm going to talk to you now about the attitude of your heart as you do these things. As you go into debt or release from debt, as you interact with your neighbor, here's the attitude that you should have. And in verse 7 he says, If there's anyone among you who's poor within the gates of your land which the Lord is giving you, don't harden your heart. Don't shut your hand from your poor brother, but rather open your hand wide to him and lend him willingly, sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. You know, it can become easy to become jaded to those who are in need in the world around us. And you know what I'm talking about. It becomes easy to look at someone on a corner with a sign, to look at someone in our community, and we say, boy, they must have made some bad life choices to be standing there with a sign. They must have made some bad life choices. I wouldn't have done that, but they did, so they're getting their just desserts. It can be easy to do this and become jaded towards those who are undergoing hardships when we don't know the least part of what has been fallen them or what their circumstances entail. Sometimes we see people living in poverty and our first thought is that they've just made bad decisions and this is the consequence for their errors or their apathy. Now, are some folks lazy or self-destructive? Are some people making consistently bad choices? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. There are those who make bad choices and are just looking to be bailed out from them. But here's the thing. So many of those that we might lump into that camp So many of the people that you see in these sorts of situations, they're suffering from hardships that you and I might not know anything about. And some of those hardships are mental. Some of them are physical impairments. Some of them are things that if we were to suffer from them, we would not be in a different estate. Some of these folks have no family. They have no one who cares for them. They're at the end threshold of an addiction that can't be shook, and they don't see anything but darkness at the end of the tunnel. To label these folks as lazy, or stupid, is disingenuous. To label these folks in such a way is disingenuous, and it's cruel, and it's not the model that we see in Scripture. It's certainly not what Christ did. It's certainly not Christ's approach when he encountered those or saw someone who was in need, or broken, hurting, poor, or what have you. What did Jesus do in those encounters? Well, he helped them. If that sounds like an oversimplification, it isn't. It's the way to summarize Christ's interaction with everyone he met. 
In fact, Jesus didn't just encounter these people at random intervals and go, oh, well, let me help you. Rather, he sought them out. That's something that's wildly different from what most of us do, is he sought out those who were broken. He sat down with, he invited over to dinner those who were in this sort of a state, apart from a bunch of conditions and qualifiers. Christ's age, just like ours, is filled with those in need, and the response was time and time and time again was grace. Grace, grace, grace. Well, we look at Deuteronomy 15. Moses, who was a type of Christ, he's anticipating and describing that same need for grace. Moses encountered hurting people in his age as well, and to his dismay, he watches his own kinsmen would harden their heart to the need and poverty of their brethren. Moses watched people get jaded. Moses watched people get jaded, and it exasperates him here. Because Moses could remember, he could think back, and he could remember what it was like for the people to be under Pharaoh's boot in Egypt. He knew that the people at one point were as broken and oppressed as anyone on earth. And he knew that when they were broken and oppressed, they cried out to God. And furthermore, he knew this, that when they cried out to God, when they were broken, when they were oppressed, he helped them. He sent them a deliverer. He provided for them grace. God heard their prayer, sent them a deliverer, brought them out of Egypt, provided manna in the wilderness, water from rock. And yet these same people, the same ones that received that, then grew calloused towards the needs of one another. And that's why he was exasperated here. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Beware. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it become a sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give it to him. Because for this thing the Lord God will bless you in all of your works and in all of that which you put your hand. Earlier we noted that every seventh year the Israelites were to practice this year of release. With that said, some Israelites, if they had lent out funds, guess what? When that seventh year was getting closer, if someone comes to you like the 11th month of the sixth year and says, Oh, I have this great need, please help me. What would the response of the individual be? What would the response of the lender be? Well, they'd look at their watch and they'd say, Well... In about 30 days, this is going to be forgiven. What advantage is it to me? If I give you this, and in 30 days, that debt goes away, and you have no means to repay it, how is this advantageous to me? In verses 9 through 11, Moses says, Beware of this. Beware lest there's a wicked thought among you that says the seventh year the year releases at hand, and then your eye be evil, and you fail to give. Moses identified that as a wicked thought, not as good business. You understand that? Not as good stewardship. He said, that's wicked. He says, don't do it. It's wicked to yoke your willingness to help someone to their ability to repay that help. That is the antithesis of everything we understand about grace. Thank God our salvation doesn't hinge on that same axis. Thank God that's not the way it works with us. And yet... We, in Moses' time, and Christ's time, the people would do this to one another, and that's not right. By contrast, Moses declared in verse 10 that you should surely give to those who are in need. And then he says this. He says, for this thing. He says, if you listen and you do, trust me, take it to heart. For this thing, God will bless you in all that you do. In other words, the moment that you let go, trying to hoard it all, keep it all, grab it all, accumulate it all, The moment you do that, 
what we see here, the moment that you let go of being covetous and greedy, what you'll find is that your cup runneth over. Isaiah 58.10, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noon day. Psalm 41.1, blessed is he who considers the poor for the Lord will deliver him in times of trouble. Do you see this? It's not simply a call of something we're supposed to do. That would be enough. Just God telling us to do it should be enough. But on top of that, he says if you do it, rather than losing something that you have, you're going to gain more than you know. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For the measure you use will be measured back to you. Who said that? What's the right answer to every question? Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 6, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. See, whenever God's people, and collectively this morning, we're one contingent of God's people, but whenever we engage in this sort of thing, either corporately or as individually, the end result is not empty coffers, it's not financial malaise, rather it's blessings that overflow the original gifts. Trust me on this, take it to the bank, ask the deacons of this church, if that's how it works. They can look back at the past few years and say, yes it is. And they have the receipts to bear that out. This promise that God gives us, He is validated even in our midst, let alone around the globe. Whenever God's people engage in mercy ministry, the result is not empty coffers, but rather blessings that overflow the original gifts. Again, in our own church, we have seen this happen. Over the past few years, our church has been very proactive along these lines. This past year gave, to my knowledge, more than the church has ever given unto mercy ministry. And the result has not been that that account has shrank. Rather, as the deacons and our treasure will attest, that particular account has doubled in the time since. We've helped more people. We've provided more blessings in-house and outside these doors. We've pointed more people to Christ through this. And yet, in doing so, the result has not been an empty account, empty reserves, empty storehouse, but rather a full one. God loves to validate His promises. He really does. If it's true for us corporately, I guarantee you it's true for you as an individual. It's true as you look at your own finances and the like. It's true. It's a promise that's not something God hedges upon here. It's not like God says, kind of, sort of, this may happen. Time and time again, he says, this is the way it works. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Those resources, those blessings might take on different forms. Not all of them will be financial. And yet you will be blessed as a result of being a blessing in the lives of others. All right, let's look at verse 11 in our final verse. For the poor will never cease from the land. As long as we live in a fallen world, there will be fallen ills, and people will be hurt and crushed under these various loads. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, not suggest to you, but command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and to your needy in your land. Again, there will always be poor. It's a functional living in this fallen world. And although that poverty in of itself is bad, here's what we've observed in previous sermons. God still uses even this bad thing for something very good. We've talked about in in previous messages that God, in working his work of redemption in a fallen world, that he can and does allow storm clouds to enter in. Let me rephrase that. He decrees storm clouds to enter into people's lives because when the storm clouds come into people's lives and they're hurting and they're needy and they don't know where to turn, it's then, most often, 
that they look up. It's then most often that they pick up a Bible. It's then most often that they walk in the doors of the church. It's then most often that they fall on their knees in prayer. When hardship has entered in, God knows us and so he uses this. In our own experience over at least the past few years, we've seen that all sorts of folks might reach out to us as a local congregation. They might show up at the door, they might call, what have you. All of them, they have this common thread. All of them have some hardship that has compelled them to reach out to a church that otherwise they wouldn't seek out. And when they do so, what should they find? What should the response then be? I've done this long enough in different churches, enough to know this, that oftentimes what happens is that there is an inability to understand or to apply direct help to people whose needs and situations are really difficult and really hard. So what often is done is a referral of these individuals to somewhere else. God appoints circumstances that lead them to the door of a local church. And oftentimes the local church then sends them to someone else. Call this number. Call this agency. Referring out is not the practice we see here in Scripture. If God has ordained a hardship to enter in someone's heart, and then He's furthermore ordained that they should walk into the doors of the church, you know what they should find? Graceful people who will meet with them, who will pray with them, who will listen to them, and if it's appropriate, will help them. As good and right and godly, and it's a solid practice that should be applied not only in this church, but churches around the globe. This is the call. But what it takes is what we've seen in our church through the leadership of our deacons. It takes individuals who begin to prepare themselves in what Scripture says, who meet together, who pray and say, we're going to do something. Even though we might be ill-equipped to deal with every issue someone might have when they walk through the door, God willing, I will meet with them. I might feel insufficient to even understand or articulate some of the drama and hurts that might show up in church, and yet I will meet with them. I will pray with them. I will listen to them. I'll extend the arms of Christ, and if it's appropriate, I'll help them. The church will help them, and then we'll invite them back. Our church has blossomed and grown throughout two years of COVID, in part because our deacons have responded appropriately to this charter, to love one another as God has loved us, to open wide the arms of the church as Christ's arms are open. And as a result, our church financially has had the strongest year this past year I think it's ever had, not just a mercy ministry, but across the board. God has filled our church with new faces, new people we've seen over the course of this past year. If you do what God has told you to do in his word, things will work out just fine. If you do what God has told you to do, and what you know you should do, the result will not be empty pews, it won't be empty coffers, it will be more blessings than you can possibly count. Do you believe that? As a church, my sense is we do. As individuals, though, we might be in different levels of understanding, but my encouragement is to come to terms with these passages, come to terms with what we see here. Christ's words, Luke 6, we already read. In Luke 14, he says this, When you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they can't repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When you give a feast, is the example here, invite people that might not occur to you to invite That's what we see in Luke 14. It models his own approaches. Let me assure you of this. There's no greater feast. No greater feast than what we do here. There's no greater feast than coming to church, being fed by his word, and once a month engaging in the Lord's Supper. Is there a greater feast than that? I don't think so. So invite people to it. Invite people to this. Don't keep what we have to ourselves. Now, as we wrap up here this morning, let me remind us that, of course, when folks approach us as individuals or as a church, there is wisdom and discernment that we have to apply in terms of how to assist. But, but, stewardship 
of God's resources is not measured by how much we hold tightly for fear of letting it go. Stewardship is always measured scripturally by how much God has given you that you then give out. How much God has entrusted to you as individuals or to a church that you sow for the kingdom of God. That's stewardship. We need not forget it. All right, let me close with this final exhortation. Once upon a time, you and I were not just poor, but we were dead. God didn't just come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Once upon a time, you and I were not just poor, but we were dead. We were spiritually flatlining. Once upon a time, our needs were not just material, but they were spiritual as well. Once upon a time, you and I had a debt that we couldn't possibly repay, a hole that we could not possibly fill. And yet into our darkened circumstances came a great light. Into our own pain came great healing. Into our grave came God's life-giving hand. In turn, he's saying, extend your hands to still others. Reach them for the kingdom. Reach them for Christ. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.